irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. Please reach out to me through my website, which is nolatherapy.com. It's the abbreviation for New Orleans Los Angeles Therapy. You can also find me through my LA Talk Radio show page at latalkradio.com. I'm on channel one all things therapy. I would love to hear from you as my listener. I really appreciate your support over the two years that I have been a podcast host and I want to engage with you and hear from you. So please reach out and in any way. And I appreciate your subscriptions, your likes to my all things therapy page on iTunes, Google Play and YouTube. And if you are inclined to support my work, through the crowdfunding campaign I have through patreon.com forward slash Lisa Tahir. I gratefully welcome that support as well. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. They offer over 180,000 book titles for you to choose from. And as my listener, they offer you a free month subscription along with an audio book download of your choice. To take advantage of that trial offer, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy. My guest today is a really brilliant woman and I'm, I'm just honored and I feel like it's a privilege. In moments, we are going to be with Ronnie Beth Tower, PhD. She is a clinical psychologist who received her doctorate degree from Yale University. She went on to teach there in the psychology department and supervise graduate students. In addition, she has her diplomat from the American Board of Professional Psychology and is a fellow of the Academy of Clinical Psychology. She was a research affiliate in the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health at Yale Medical School for over 10 years. She blogs for psychologytoday.com under her her handle, so to speak, called Love is Real. We're going to talk about that today. She has been interviewed and published and featured in Glamour Magazine, Family Circle, 17, Red Book, Cosmopolitan, on USA Today, in the Wall Street Journal. She's been on multiple television networks and documentaries. She is presented at over 30 national and international conferences. So, And in addition to all that, if that's not enough to do with one's life and mission, she published a memoir called Miracle at Midlife. And we are going to talk about that book today. It is her 22-year anniversary with her husband and partner, David, which is what Miracle Miracle at Midlife, a transatlantic romance, is about. And I'm just grateful to have you with us today, Dr. Tower. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. I am delighted to be with you. Um, those were that was where I was, um, and where my work was picked up when I was doing science, when I was uh, publishing in journals, and when I was making science and referee journal articles and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, 
This has been, writing has been a whole second career for me. And when I published my book, it was like, oh my goodness, um, I need to do something. And that's when I started writing for Psychology Today. Um, my blog on Psychology Today is actually Life Refracted. Oh, thank uh, you the for Love that is correction. Real blog okay. is a little more personal, and that's on my own website. Okay. So life so, refracted is two different careers here. Today. Wow, you've done so much. I was just really blown away at the depth and and width of of your career and your contribution. Well, thank you very very much. It's because I've been around a long time, <laughs> so I've been able to do lots of different things. Um, it's also thanks very much to the people I've bumped into and the interest that they've had and ways we've been able to collaborate and things they've taught me and allowed me to bring to them. Hmm. So a collaboration of sorts, a co-creation, which I think our Absolutely. lives are really about. Uh, we Just before coming live, you and I were speaking about just serendipity and things happening and just us being led. And I know in your work, your bachelor's degree was in religion, if I remember correctly, from Barnard University? Barnard College. Barnard and College. back then, which was in the 60s, it was a long time ago because I've been around a long time, um, you couldn't really study the things I was interested in in a psychology department. Psychology departments were very behavioral. They were about rats running mazes and learning theory and stuff like that. Or they were extremely psychoanalytical. And that wasn't what I was interested in. I've always been interested in big questions like what is love? What is grief? What is... Um, commitment, what is good, what's the good life, what is sin, what is salvation, what is redemption. And it was a wonderful department where I could study that in a way that was neither history nor theology, but instead it was pretty much phenomenology. How do people mm. experience those things? Yes. So it was just a wonderful, wonderful fit for me. And of course, I got introduced to all things Eastern. Yeah. And just loved Eastern thought. It was a whole other way of looking at looking at life and the universe. And that shaped me. By the time I went back to school um, to get my degree in psychology at Yale, it had become possible to study those things. So I was actually able to do my dissertation on values. Um, wow. I was actually able to do an awful lot of work with imagery. At one point, I, w I was even president of the American Association for the Study of Mental Imagery. Imagery is fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. And of course, that took me in other directions. <laughs> and I, I've just had the, the blessing of being able to follow so many of them in my lifetime. But that's because it's been a lot of years. Well, and, and you've had a proclivity to study and really embody the journey within, which is an important part of my life and and my path and what I why I wanted to even start a podcast to bring listeners guests and perspectives that are different from how I think from day to day how others might think and just offer for consideration new perspectives traditions and philosophies and in your work in your memoir there are some deep themes that that you address around trust and and Paris even as a metaphor 
And even as you do quilting, the scraps and pieces that you put together representing the various aspects of our life that become woven into a tapestry, so to speak. So where, where do you want to start with us today? Lisa, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, my, my life has been about, when I, was, when I was young, I thought that I was running the show and that I could make my life be what I thought my life should be. And um, man plans, God laughs. I got corrected. (laughs) And gradually, uh, what happened to me was I was gradually shown that that was not at all what my life was supposed to be about. Um, Incidentally, it wasn't going to make me happy, but it certainly wasn't about the purpose. And bit by bit, my life showed me what I was supposed to do, who I was supposed to become, what what I was doing here on this earth anyway in this lifetime. Yes. And that's embedded in my story. My my book only covers a two year period. Right. Nineteen ninety six to nineteen ninety eight. It's a love story. And it tells the story how in the middle of my life, after lots and lots of little changes that had taught me very much to identify and follow the breadcrumbs that are leading me to where I'm supposed to be going Mm. and other lessons I needed to have, um, I met this man who was just supposed to be part of my life for, for what followed. And the book tells the story of how being two grounded mortals, we figured out how to love each other, and how to be loved by each other. And that's, that's basically what it's about. So to give our listeners some background, you had gone to Paris at 19 to study at the Sorbonne, and correct? And that was your that, first time? You went by yourself? <laughs> that, that, that was the first time I went by myself. And I went because the summer of 1963, I was homeless. Right. Um, my mother had moved to California, my father had remarried, and my stepmother wanted nothing to do with me. And I had nowhere to go the summer before my senior year of college. It was a good idea to get an extra two credits under my belt so that I wouldn't have to work so hard the fall of my senior year. And so I saved my babysitting money, and I went to Paris that summer and studied at the Sorbonne. And at the end of the summer, like a 19-year-old might do, who's very enamored by this gorgeous city, I stood in the center of it, right at Place de la Concorde, and I looked up at the Arc Arch- de Triomphe. I looked back at the Louvre, and I said, this is the most beautiful place. I'm not com- It's romantic. I'm not coming back till I can come back with a man I love. Mm. And that never happened. 33 years later, that had never happened. Mm. And so one winter morning when I was an empty nested 52-year-old, I had an early patient. I brought in the New York Times. I opened it up. It was January, and I had to shovel through the snow to get to it, and I saw a 279 round trip to Paris, and I said, woman, you are not that 19-year-old girl. You need to get on a plane and go back to Paris. You can't live the rest of your life never going back because of a promise you made to someone who may be there in your memories, but you're no longer that person. You get on a plane, 
and go back. Mm. With that, I decided to sell the jewelry I'd inherited from my mother to pay for the trip. Right. And I bought the practical side of me, bought a new computer, which I needed for work. Yes. And the other side of me bought a round-trip ticket to Paris for four nights. And with my frequent flyer coupons, I bought two nights at the Hilton Hotel, and I had two nights free. And that was how I got to Paris in March of 1996. You were sensible about it. Sensible but terrified. So, may I, I knew you, I had to do it, but I was scared. Can we backtrack a little bit? I, I have a question for you about this about the story. When you went at nineteen, were you scared then? Did you feel fear standing there in no. the Arc de Triomphe? None. Wow. None. What Absolutely made you, none. Why did you I, feel fear? I was going to control my life. Okay. I I was young. I was doing what I wanted. I was independent. I had already done some things I was I was really pleased about and proud of. And I thought that I was running the show. Um, I had to get corrected on that assumption. I could certainly have my dreams. I could certainly have my intentions. But what my life was going to be about was not what I thought it was going to be about at 19. At 19... I only knew what I did not want. Okay. I had yet to learn what really, truly, deep down did make me happy. And that does take life experience, I think, to bring us those insights and awarenesses about ourselves. I think, I think often it does. I think, um, I think there are probably some people who have had a different life than I had had who are clearer earlier, um, but it took me life experience. It took me a lot of learning. It took me a lot of, a couple of mistakes. Um, but the gift is I was able to learn from it all. Yes. So we share a common a commonality um, of sorts. When when I was nineteen, I was I was kicked out of my home and I lived with a family that I knew from high school and I started attending a church with them. And when I was twenty one, two years later, the church group we went to Israel and on the way back we flew through the Charles de Gaulle airport in Paris. And I thought, I don't know if I'll ever have this opportunity again. So I broke away from the group and I stayed. It was three or four nights in Paris. I just booked some hotel. I didn't know where it was going to be. And so I left the group at the airport and and got on a train to go in the middle of downtown Paris and not knowing anything about where I was or where I was going. I took the wrong train, ended up dead in at the station where the train sleeps at night. I burst out crying and the conductor comes through speaking only French, which I couldn't understand. And I felt like, oh my gosh, this was such a mistake. What am I doing? And I felt so scared, yet he kind of directed me where I needed to go. I found my hotel and and I, I just felt like I need to go home. This is too much. This was a bad idea. But to change my flight was too expensive. So I had to hunker down and make a go of it. So I decided, Ronnie Bath, the next morning to wake up and just see where I was. And it turns out I was on the Seine River around the oh corner my God. from the Musée d'Orsay. And oh. everything, like literally, it was paradise. I was in the middle of the epicenter of Paris that I've only read about. 
and I went on tour, took a bus to Versailles, and I met some friends, had coffee at a cafe, had Indian food by the Eiffel Tower, and it was the most magical time, and I just feel so grateful. I cherish those memories of having the courage to just go by myself and experience, and I haven't been back yet, but it's my dream and desire to revisit Paris as well. Lisa, I love it. Now, first of all, when was this? And secondly, you were on the the left bank in front of the Musée d'Orsay? Yes. Okay, I'm 46 years old now, and that's when I was 19. So I'm trying to do some math. So that was, is that 30, 35 years ago? Oh, my gosh. It's time to go back. It is. It is. It's, um, so that was... Um, well, or 27 years ago, would have been um, just before I met David, which was 22 years ago. Five years before that, it would have been about 91. Okay, yes, yes. So Paris was very cleaned up by then. It was beautiful. 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 Beautiful, and you were by, you were on the left bank by the Musée d'Orsay. Literally, a, a stroll. I could walk there. I don't know how I intuitively chose this hotel, um, and I tried to order breakfast in French. Actually, Ronnie Beth, I tried to order a pot of coffee in French because I had taken French in high school. The the person showed up with a huge platter of croissants and coffee and tea and juice for like four people. I didn't know what I had said in French. And so <laughs> it was a comedy of errors. Oh, I love it. I so it was just really it. fun. I, I tried to speak French, obviously poorly, and um, but just made my way through those four days and saw amazing museums, met people that I stayed in touch with, with a few for a few years. It was just an amazing time. Oh, I love it. I love it. When you were when you were on the river right then when you walked to the Musée d'Orsay and you were on the Seine, if you looked across the river, you'd have been looking at David's boat. So tell us about this. Tell us about how you met David when you went back in your midlife for that four night stay and and how you met David and today you're celebrating twenty two years together. 22 years together. I, it, it, it just is it's amazing. Yeah. I knew I needed to make this trip. I was terrified of making this trip, but it was one of those destiny things I needed to do. This, my love story is not about healing. We, we were middle-aged. We were healed. We were in pretty good shape. It's about destiny. And um, two days before I left, a girlfriend said, gee, you should call David. And I said, who's David? And she said, well, he went to law school with her husband. I said, okay, um, and I took his phone number. I had promised another friend I would call her cousin, because back then, phone calls were really expensive. Right. They were very expensive back no then, internet. and we did not like we have, have the now. internet. Yeah. This was pre-internet. So I had these two phone numbers. I knew I had to make the phone call, bought a phone card at the airport, and the first the first day I was there... I kept getting lost and found again. 33 years was a very long time to have been away. Yes. And I kind of hobbled into the bar at the hotel at the end of the day. That was about all I could manage in terms of dinner. (laughs) And I looked out. The Eiffel Tower was right out in front of the window. 
and had a glass of wine, had some cheese, and gathered all my courage. I am mechanically challenged. I went to that phone booth and figured out how to make that phone call and called the cousin. And the cousin was not happy to hear from yet another expat who <laughs> she didn't know why she was calling or what she wanted. But she, she was, I, I can understand that she wasn't too happy to hear from somebody bringing regards from my friend in Toronto. Um, and then I called David and he was not home. So thank goodness I got to leave a message on his answering machine. The next morning he called me up just when I got out of the bathtub, and um, I ran for the phone, picked it up, and we had a phone conversation. I must have asked him about some location or another. I said I hadn't been back in 33 years. What would he recommend? And I asked him about something, and he said, well, it depends on your point of view. And I said, oh, I do that for a living. I was trying to banter with him. And he said, oh, you're an optometrist. (laughs) And I laughed because I thought that was pretty funny. Yes. And he liked that I laughed because then he invited me to dinner. (laughs) And that was how I met David. I knew nothing about him except that he had gone to law school with my friend's husband, and I knew he lived in Paris. And he had been living in Paris for, I think, about 24 years, if that's... Accurate. Uh, at met. that time, it was at that time he'd been there twenty three years. Okay, and that was that was his adult career. Most of his adult career, he um, he had fallen in love with Paris on a junior year abroad, and he was determined to get back there and to live there. He loved the city and what it brought to him, and the person it helped him be. One of my mentors um, was a man named Richard Hackman, who talked about the ambient stimuli in our worlds, those things that surround us that we're exposed to simply because we are where we are. It includes the the light, the time zones, the people, the language, the all those things we don't normally think of when we think of stimuli. They're, they're just there, and they affect us. Mm. Well, Paris was really, really good for him and he knew it so he stayed yeah and that's what he was doing there i i did not know until he picked me up um that he was living on a converted barge yes and it's funny the story i think you all you all were riding by and he pointed at some boats in the Seine and said i live on one of those was it something like that in passing well it it kind of was i he picked me up, and we were heading towards the restaurant he was going to take me to, and I saw blinking lights on the other side of the river. They were in the chestnut trees, and they were like like a million blinking Christmas lights, and I've always loved light, any kind of light. I, re- I really like light. And I asked him, what is that? And he pulled off the road, and he walked me across the street, Um and we leaned against the wall that overlooks the river, and at that time they had blinking lights throughout the chestnut trees that are in back of the Batomouche, those um, barges that go up and down the river carrying tourists, mm-hmm. carrying passengers, showing them the city from the river. And that the Batomouche are parked right in front of the beginning of the 48-boat community that David was part of. 
So I looked to the right, and I saw these barges lined up on both banks of the river at that point. And I said, what are those? And he said, well, those are those are houseboats. I live on one of them. That's I said, so you cool. what? I, I don't think it had computed to me that people did live on boats. I, I knew I'd seen them in Holland. I knew I'd seen them in Sausalito. Right. But I certainly had never known anybody who lived on a boat. And here I was about to have dinner with someone who lived on a houseboat. So I knew there was going to be a story to that one. Definitely. You know, I want to, if I may, go back to something you said a few moments ago, because I I heard you speak about this on another interview. And I think for our listeners, and certainly for myself, it's an important point. You said a few moments ago that you met when you were both healed. So the relationship, the purpose of the relationship, it wasn't a coming together to heal old wounds. You came together midlife as being healed, whole individuals. And can you speak to us about that as a psychologist and, and romantic love and attraction, just relationships as assignments, that all those thoughts just came up in my mind? Okay, Dave, David and I, through different routes, we had lived really, really blessed, exciting lives, especially his. Uh, he was done with romance. He'd had it with women. He had been divorced for, at that point, I think it was maybe 16 years, but his wife and two kids, they'd gone back to the States. He saw his kids very regularly, but he was done with, with women, done, done, done with romance. I had had a, I had had a 16-year first marriage. I'd married when I was 20, and that ended in divorce. My second marriage, um, a few years later was um, quite wonderful, but he died yes. uh, very suddenly of a heart attack at a very young age. And um, then I made the mistake of marrying a third time, but I guess I needed to learn that loving is not always safe. And I needed to learn a lot about love. I was not one of those people who grew up surrounded by a great deal of love. Those Mm -hmm. people, they don't need to learn about it. I needed to learn about it because that's what my life was supposed to be about. It was supposed to be about learning it, living it, and teaching it. So my life gave me lessons. Um, And I I learned to love. I, I, my daughter just totally converted me. (laughs) Mm. From her, I learned that love expands that it's not a fixed quantity. The more you love, the more you can love. It's got this infinite, infiniteness to it. Even though you can't measure it. That's why I called my blog Love is Real. You can't measure it. It's not something you can put into numbers, although people have tried. It is something much more ephemeral than that. And you can measure different facets of it. You can measure the plumbing and the wiring in the human right. body, the hormones, the, the neural firings and the uh, chemistries in the brain when someone is loving in different ways. But that's not love. That's not the energy of love. That's not that feeling of, of devotion and of, um, and of gratitude that this, 
being has become, or this, this thing has become part of your life and makes your life so much broader. So I learned loving uh, through my children, through loving a home, through um, loving a location, Mm-hmm. through loving work, I had work I loved, through my patients, I had patients, oh my goodness, I loved my patients. And the more they let themselves be known, the more I, the more I loved them, the more real they were, the more complete. So I, I had learned a great deal about loving. Above all, I had learned to love myself. Yes. And I had learned to treat myself with a great deal of love, taking myself to Paris on that trip. That was an act of love. It wasn't practical, but I knew I needed to do it. Neither David nor I needed to get to a place where we were happy with ourselves, where we were comfortable with ourselves, where we were grateful for our lives and where we liked our lives. We came together to share. It was simply that we loved being with each other. I was so armored that first weekend that I got back on the plane and I I had never kissed this man. I sat down on in my seat and I just said what just happened to me? I I thought my chest, my heart was going to bounce out of my chest and that was when what had happened energetically began to sink in. And I had no reason to believe I would ever see him again. Mm. He lived in Paris. I lived in Connecticut. And we both had very complex, involved, committed lives. So how, how did, were we going to? Yeah, how did you I just didn't think together. I'd see him again. Right. So that's, that's where we were. And it was, it was to find the joy of sharing with each other. There's a Swedish proverb that... that Sharing halves grief and doubles joy. Yes. And I think there's a lot to that. It's been quite wonderful being able to share my life with him. Mm-hmm. And I think now, there's... Go ahead, you first, Ronnie Beth. Well, another blessing of the midlife thing was my life had had a great deal of loss in it. And I had to accept that loss is, except yet again and yet on another level, that loss impermanence is is our human condition. Nothing is permanent. Loss is part of life. At some point, at some point, someone's going to die. One of us would lose the other. And that had to be okay. I had to not get stuck in being afraid, could I cope? Because my life had taught me I could cope. It had taught me what was involved. It had taught me about pain. It had taught me how to move through it, and it taught me how to let let go. All of these lessons, I didn't have to worry about could I cope. But it it took us a long, a long, a lot of navigation to get me there, where I was willing to actually, actually commit. And you had to navigate issues of trust and partnering with David and getting to know Absolutely. him. Absolutely, yeah. As I think we, we do in intimate relationships and even non-romantic relationships, trust being a fundamental building block and piece of, of being close to people. 
We absolutely had to. And Lisa, he was French. <laughs> I, I know he was born here and educated here, but he he was very French. So there's a big cultural Trust, difference. Trusting him didn't come easily. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just... I, there was that part of it, too, all that what was happening over there when I wasn't there. Right. Right. I just think there's such value in what you are speaking about around people coming together when they have done their own work, when they are content with themselves and have a high level of of self-love and acceptance and forgiveness and then can partner from that place. I find myself in that place turning 47 this summer that I had a lot to learn about love and I'm currently single and I feel like I'm my best self to, to offer and be available to romantic love with all that I had to learn about my own obstacles and blocks and just worthiness and, and true um, lovability within and just having to learn to deeply root into my value and what's important to me and then life starting to reflect that in in all aspects and all kinds of ways as I go throughout my day. So I feel excited and I feel just prepared. I had a lot of growing to do coming from um, a home where there was divorce and, and violence and not a lot of predictability. So um, I've had to really teach myself and I feel like I'm able to step into now being available to a partner in a way that I never have because I'm so available to myself. It's it's a whole other ballgame. Yeah. It's a whole other ballgame. I mean, my childhood was chaos. I knew when I was 20, I wanted not that. Right. <laughs> and I married order. I mean, he was a lovely, lovely man. But as we grew, we grew so differently. Yeah. Um, the, the, the being comfortable with who you are, then you bring not only everything you bring to somebody else, but you bring a desire to understand them. Yes. And and to appreciate the differences as well as the similarities. It's it's not looking for a mirror. It's not looking for the missing pieces. It's just embracing whatever happens to be there and trying to understand it because it's it's different. And that it's takes not a, the yeah. same. And it takes a lot of knowing who we are, I think, to it do does. that. It does, and that takes a lot of that takes a lot of of courage, and a, a lot of risks. Yes. I think after the universe um, saw that you know I I was really doing some very nice loving. Um, David and I had both been in Paris the summer of 1963. We would not have looked at each other at that time. We were so not ready for each other. Mm. And then there we were 33 years later, sitting across a dinner table and talking about how we had both walked away from lives that could have been filled with fame and fortune because that wasn't what we wanted. That wasn't what was going to make us happy. And the bond was formed. The connection was formed. Mm -hmm. We didn't want that particular life. It wasn't right for either of us. So you shared that, that vision. We shared that vision. First, first night. Wow. 
David used to say I knew everything I needed to know the first night I met you. Me, it took me a lot longer because I needed to know what is he doing in Paris when I'm in Connecticut. And and so how did you handle that? Because that does sound challenging. And I live in two cities. They're much closer together, New Orleans and Los Angeles. But Paris and the U.S., that's a transatlantic flight. How did you handle coping with that? Uh, it was it was very, very romantic. Um, we understood quite quickly that there was no substitute for face-to-face contact. Um, years and years ago, Alfred Moravian uh, did the research that showed that um, emotional the emotional component of a communication is only something like 37% in the words, and once you add tone of voice, it gets up a lot higher. But you're still missing something if it's not face-to-face. And I just received, I just ordered a book by Susan Pinker that kind of updates that research to today, showing that all the different ways that social media just doesn't cut it, email just doesn't cut it. David and I didn't have email back then. We certainly didn't have Skype. We had phone calls, which were outrageously expensive. And fairly soon on, he was a lawyer. He discovered the fax machine. We both had a fax machine, so we faxed back and forth together. We wrote these long faxes to each other. and. um so we were communicating every day, at least a couple of times a day before long. But the first challenge was for him to just plain get us back into a face-to-face situation to see what would happen. I mean, I hadn't kissed him. Wow. <laughs> How do you figure this out? Yeah. And um, I had to wait for him to figure it out. I understood intuitively that David needed to drive the car. This was very important to him, and it was very important that I be able to let him drive the car and that I be able to trust him to drive it. There are some quotes in the book about us talking about him driving the car and my fears of what he might do with it. But he he earned my trust, and he has just driven us on one fantastic ride for 22 years here. That's beautiful. So I'm curious, being that today is you and his 22-year anniversary, you go back to Paris tonight. What is next? You you stopped teaching at Yale in 2006. You saw your last patient in 2011. What What is next for you? Well... A series of synchronicities pushed this book out into the world. So now I have this book, which is kind of our baby, because mm-hmm. it's our story. So we've been having a lot of fun with it. Um, I developed a workshop to talk about love when you least expect it for the American Library in Paris. So I can do that two-hour workshop for people now. So now that we're home from doing that for Valentine's Day for the American Library in Paris. I am maybe going to figure out how to do it around here for people who might like it. Wonderful. Um, and I also did a version of it. These are both richly illustrated with 
photographs, lots of the PowerPoint is almost all slides and lots and lots of slides. The other one is more of a book talk, talking about the challenges that we faced, the external challenges of being embedded in very different cultures, of having family and friends who were not necessarily on board about this relationship, and our careers, which were powerful, powerful forces in both of our lives and made demands on us. Nonetheless, we figured out how to do it. So... The next step is probably to continue having fun, telling our story and helping people take pieces of it and use it in their own lives. Not everybody's going to go to Paris and find love there. Um, And they're not necessarily going to find it in the form of a romantic relationship. But they absolutely can find it if they can see the ways in which it's being offered to them. Mm, So I'd like to help people continue to understand that. And then the other one is more about the external challenges and then my own internal challenges, especially facing all those fears I had and working my way through them so that I would be able to make the commitment that I made. Um, so that's one thing I'd like to do. My fantasy after I retired and and after I realized the book was really going to be published was to help people the way I'd help them in my consulting room, but to help people I didn't know in ways that, um, I might never know, but just by putting what I believed in out there. And I can't thank you enough for this opportunity to do exactly that. I mean, this is amazing. You're welcome. This is amazing. It's such a privilege. And our mutual contact author, Cindy Michaels, put us together. I'll be interviewing her this summer. So I'm really grateful to her as well for connecting us for today's time together. I, I am too. And, and me meeting Cindy, it was an, another synchronicity. I, I mean, the universe does arrange these things. If we can let go of what we think should be yes. and allow what is yes. to become clear, uh, to allow ourselves to have that wonder and see things with fresh eyes as they really are, not as how we think they need to be. And I wonder, Ronnie Beth, did you ever think being a Yale University professor and in the medical school that you would be writing a memoir about love after writing science for so many years? I didn't. Um, I (laughs) I didn't see that coming. I just knew I wrote the story down so my kids and grandkids would be able to understand how I changed my life so dramatically and what changes in me came as a result of this relationship. Um, that was that was just that was just for them. This turning it out into the world. The the essay on my website, a book is born, tells how it kind of made this book wanted to be out there. And I just said, okay, you're telling me something. I'll follow you. I'll take you out there. So I think, I think actually what I want to talk about next 
is either the sequel, What Happened After, or we have had the wonderful opportunity of introducing our grandchildren to Paris because I understood they could never fully understand David unless they understood Paris and understood him in Paris and what it pulls for in him. So I have all this firsthand experience about traveling in Paris where I lived um, with him, with grandchildren, and making it just such a fantastic experience that I think I'd like to write about that and share that with the world because we, we it's just this wonderful wonderful thing to be able to do it's talk about sharing love it's sharing love in so many different directions in so many different ways yes and and your memoir i just find it to be filled with such hope and especially being midlife and you had as well kind of given up on love i'm done with this similar to how david had felt and then you find each other and the universe you both were willing and open to be led down the path of breadcrumbs that you followed to each other and i'm just i'm just happy to be speaking to you on your anniversary and i i wish you both such a safe trip Going to back oh, to Lisa, I, I thank you so much, and I wish you, um, I wish you all the blessings that the universe has in store for you. Thank you, thank you. I receive that, and much joy, much yes. joy. Yes. So, for our listeners to find you, would it be through your website, Miracle at at Midlife dot com? Miracle at midlife.com. Miracle at 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 midlife.com. And the Psychology Today blog is under Psychology Today Life Refracted. And uh, one of the things I did there was write 52 ways to show I love you for an entire year. So people who want to expand their repertoire of ways to love, that brings psychology and my love story together. Yeah, and you wrote 22 Benefits of Sex After 50. So I think that's an important read as well. That's on my website. I, I put that, I actually put the link to that on the, the face page. So it's real easy to find. I don't know if that's the Huffington Post version of it or the Psychology Today, but they're both accessible through my website. Miracle at Midlife.com. Dr. Ronnie Beth Tower, thank you for being my guest today. Lisa, thank you so much. And be in touch in the future. I'd love to have you back on to talk about your continued work. Oh, I would love to come back. I love talking to you. I Me hope too. I hope I brought you something. You did. So much hope. Thank you. I, I hope, and I do hope you'll go back to Paris. I, 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 it's in my consciousness now. Actually, Italy. Italy is what's coming up for me as well. So I will go. It's time. It is. Thank you. It's it's time. The, the pointers are pointing you back to Europe. There's something there. There's something there. There's a piece there for you to reclaim. That 19-year-old who fell in love with this city that you stumbled into. Well, you didn't stumble into it. It was, it was conscious. You right. knew you wanted to do it. Yes. Now it's time to go back. I will, and I'll let you know about it. I would love to hear about it. I would love that. Thank you, Ronnie Beth. Have a wonderful time with Cindy. She's absolutely great. I look forward to interviewing her as well.
Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a great evening. Yes. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. That concludes my show today with Dr. Ronnie Beth Tower about her memoir, Miracle at Midlife, A Transatlantic Romance. Find her and her work through her website, which is miracleatmidlife.com. Thank you for listening in today, and I look forward to bringing you another show next week. Bye-bye. You're listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir, only on L.A. Talk Radio. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.